Thanks so much for listening to the City Church Podcast. We pray that this message draws you closer to the heart of Jesus and impacts your daily life. For more resources, check out ourcitychurch.org. Morning, everybody. Welcome to church. You doing good? Glad to be here. Welcome to City Church on this Sunday, July 17th. Glad to have you here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Mike, and I am one of the pastors here on staff. So glad and honored that you would spend some of your Sunday morning with us. Our lead pastor, Justin, and his family are enjoying a few weeks of vacation. And so uh, I have the great honor of bringing the Word of God to you this morning. We've been over the last six weeks in a series called Surrounded by Jazz. Hasn't it been good? Been good, right? Been working our way through First John. And so surrounded by jazz, we know that John operates in a very circular way as he moves his way through his books. Doesn't operate and doesn't write in a linear way that many of us are, are used to reading, but tends to come at things from different angles. Much like a jazz musician kind of nuances things and comes back versus a straightforward rock musician. And so we've been in this series surrounded by jazz. It's been so good. I'm still chewing on those those four layers of God's love from a few weeks ago. Anybody else? It's good, right? Yeah, still a lot to learn from that. And so excited that you're here. If you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me? We left off at the end of chapter 4 last week, and so we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. Our text this morning is verse 1 through 12, and so it's a little bit long, but hang with me. I'm going to read the whole thing. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. So John writes this, coming out of verse 4. Picks it up in verse 1 of 5. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. It goes on to write, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning himself. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Woo! The long one. You okay? You still with me? It's good. All right, if you're taking notes, the title of this morning's message is Can It Be? Can it be? Let's pray together as we begin. Lord Jesus, we just dedicate the rest of this time to you. Take a moment, just honor you. We're so grateful for you. No matter all the busyness and craziness that have led through the week and up to this morning, we just quiet ourselves before you, just saying that we long to hear from you. Would you just speak to us this morning, speak to us through your word. Would you move among us today? In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Finish this statement with me. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. All around us are these examples of things that have claimed to be 
so good and yet they've let us down? You think of the latest marketing schemes from tech gadgets and you spend $500 on that new phone and yet it turns out to not be all that awesome and your life's not all that same, all that different. Maybe it's the, uh, the $20 all-you-can-eat buffet and you leave feeling awful because it's not real food. All around us, when we paint these grand promises that companies and marketing schemes put out there, we've learned that when the sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I remember when I was engaged to my wife, this was a lot of years ago because we're getting old now, her more than me, but we're getting old, and um, I remember I was broke. I was just out of college. I had to borrow money from my wife to buy her an engagement ring, all right? And so I was real broke, and uh, that was a great moment for me, if you remember, because then we got married, and I was like, babe, what's mine is yours. I've got to pay you back. Yours is mine, you know? And so I remember going to wedding expos, if you've ever been engaged and had to do that, and I remember going to one of those places that sells kitchenwares, and we didn't have anything, pots and pans, anything like that, so we had to start picking some of that stuff. And one of the places said, if you'll come and give us two hours of your time while we talk about our product, we'll give you a free trip to Jamaica. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But I bit it hook, line, and sinker, spent an entire Saturday morning learning about all these various types of metal, only to turn out that the trip to Jamaica had so many different contingencies and ways that it had to be used, it would have cost me more money to go with them than to just go with myself. You know, we've seen this all throughout various things in history as well. Promises that if they seem too good to be true, perhaps they actually are. Maybe you remember the unsinkable ship. The turn of the 20th century, even though every vessel created up until now had been potentially able to be wrecked, architects and engineers thought they had figured out exactly how to make the unsinkable ship and lauded it as such. Nothing could take the Titanic down, the unsinkable ship of that fateful night. April 14th, 1912, the unsinkable ship hit the Arsberg dead ahead. And what did it do? It went down, right? The unsinkable ship sank. So if you're anything like me, anytime I come across something that seems a little bit too good to be true, I very quickly grow cautious. I very quickly get a little skeptical, a little cynical, because all these things swirling around me have taught That if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Probably is. The problem is, and maybe you do this as well, that has seeped into the way that I read my scriptures. The way that I read the Bible. And so in this passage, John has this incredible promise for us. And yet there's a part of me that wants to say, that that seems a little bit too good to be true. There's a part of me that wants to say, I'm not sure that can actually possibly be. So even though John has been, for now, up to the first four chapters, he's been really moving through this text in a very, a very circular way, like jazz music, as we've said. We get to chapter 5, and he begins to move just much more linear. And so he moves very quickly through these first five verses, if you caught it. He begins by just talking in verse 1 about our faith being grounded. He talks about a faith that is, that is rooted in Jesus Christ. And as he begins to move through the text, he talks about how this faith moves us to action. John's been talking a lot about that love that seeks to honor that which is lovely. And so faith in Jesus wants to honor him and wants to move us to obedience. And it talks about as we, as we obey him, that we don't find the commandments that he puts on us as, as heavy, but as delightful because we're seeking to honor Jesus. Keep saying this faith that is rooted in the work of Jesus allows and affords us the ability to overcome the world. And enjoy the same victory that Jesus 
enjoyed. And then, I know I'm moving quickly here, but hang with me. In verses 6 through 12, he basically puts Jesus in the courtroom and says, this Jesus in who our faith is grounded is trustworthy. And you can trust that he is who he says he is. And he goes about in those seven verses proving that Jesus is who he says he is. I don't know if you caught it while we were reading. Sometimes Bible language for us can go really common. We can get really used to some of the big promises of Scripture. John has one of the most powerful statements that I've read in a long time. And he says this. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. For everyone who has been born of God. So if you are here this morning and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, that promise is for you. For everyone who has been born of God, okay, you, you overcome the world. And we read that and we go, come on, no, 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 no. No, that promise is too grand. That promise is, is simply too big to actually be true. John, you're using language that is, it's got to be hyperbole. You must not actually mean we can, we can overcome the world because that's just, that just seems too great. Because if you're honest... I think there aren't that many of us in the room this morning that would say, yeah, my, my life feels like one that's, that's overcoming obstacles. That probably wouldn't be an adjective that many of us use to describe our, our current set of circumstances. You look at a phrase like overcoming the world and you're like, man, I know nothing of that life. My work is crazy right now. I'm being trampled on. Me and my wife are battling Maybe you're single still and you wanted to be married five years ago and the fact that you're still single is crippling your faith. Your 12-month-old maybe hasn't slept in a year and you're so exhausted that you just feel like everything is coming over you. And if Jesus has a promise of a victorious life in which he says you can overcome the world, you're like, man, I know nothing of that existence and I'm not sure it's actually true. Man, if you stepped in my shoes right now, you would understand why that promise cannot be for me. That these circumstances have shown that that promise must be applied to somebody else. And here's what I've learned about God. He never overpromises and underdelivers. He never promises you a trip to Jamaica that you can't actually use. So if there's a promise of God here, I think it's worth mining together to get to the heart of that treasure that he writes. Now, let's be honest. That phrase, overcome the world, is a little bit strange. You know, I hear it and I think of like the New World Order or pinky in the brain? What on earth does overcome the world actually mean? What is John saying here? Because that word overcome sure does hold a lot of weight. But what does he mean when he says the world? You know, all throughout Scripture, the world is used to denote a lot of several, a lot of different things. Sometimes we talk about the world as, as creation, God who created the world. Sometimes that phrase is used to describe the mass of humanity, of mankind, where he said, for God so loved the world. But John has defined it for us already, what he's describing when he uses that phrase. And so that we get all level ground, let's let John describe for us when he's saying overcome the world. What exactly is he describing? He wrote this earlier, last chapter. Maybe you remember it. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Clearly not talking about creation. Clearly not talking about humanity. At the root of what John is talking about this morning is this this thing that you and I have to remember. 
that there is a system in which the world operates now that runs counter to everything God loves. Paul tells us that the struggle of our life is not against flesh and blood. And that's a little bit odd. That's a little bit frightening if we're honest. Struggle is not against flesh and blood. Maybe you're here and you really struggle with just believing that the supernatural is real. Real. But what Paul reminds us and what we have to fundamentally remember if we're going to lay hold of this promise is that what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, there are schemes of the devil. And I believe that when John says you can overcome the world, what he's saying is that through Jesus, through your faith in him, you have the power to overcome the schemes of the devil. And I know that's a bit of an odd thing to talk about. But let me simplify it for you. When I talk about the schemes of the devil, what am I saying in its most simplest form? I think as as we look at Scripture, what's most evident is that we look from from Genesis chapter 1 to all the way through the end of Revelation. Satan's primary goal in its most simplest form is to this, is to keep people from worshiping God. Satan has a lot of schemes to go about keeping you from worshiping God. Now, I know that's not necessarily the news you came in here looking to hear. Sorry to burst your bubble, but in this very moment, you have an enemy who is is trying to do everything he can to keep you from worshiping God, to keep you from having your relationship with him operate in sweetness and in joy. But the promise of God, the promise of John, is that through your faith in Christ, you have the ability to overcome that. So the question that we've got to answer is that if that's a promise, how do we lay hold of it? All right, how do we lay hold of it? See, up until now in the first four chapters of 1 John, John has been really kind, I would say. Been a lot of talk about love, a lot of talk about faith, about loving our brother. Charles Spurgeon, uh, a pastor some of you may have heard of who lived in the, the 20th century, says this about 1 John. He says, in the first four chapters... John is perfumed with love. Isn't that nice? Isn't that? He says at chapter 5, he hears the sounds of war. I love how he puts that. Chapter 5, we hear the sounds of war. See, the promise of God is that these schemes of the devil, his desire to take you down and to keep you from worshiping God can be overcome through your faith. And Jesus talked a little bit about this himself. And this is a bit of a play on words that John is doing here because in John chapter 16, verse 33, he records how Jesus says this. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. We're in trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now I I read that in John chapter 16 and it's pretty easy for me to get get on board with that. I look at Jesus and and his mission that he came to do to live the perfect and holy life that you and I couldn't live. I see how he's nailed to the cross and how God raises him from the dead. In doing so allows our sin to be paid for and allows resurrection life of Jesus to be offered to you and I through faith. And I say, man, that's easy to see how that crushes Satan's schemes. 
But in 1 John chapter 5, John uses the exact same phrase. See, that phrase, overcome the world, is, is two Greek words that he puts together. Nikau cosmos. Okay, two Greek words, overcome the world. And so what John is saying is he's hearkening back to what, he, what Jesus said in his gospel where he says, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And John says, you can too. Just like Jesus overcame Satan, so can you. And so the, the thing that I do not want you to take away from right now is fear. Oh, that, that Satan is trying to keep me from worshiping God. No, 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 no. The promise is stronger than that. But Peter writes, in talking about just the devil and trying to come against the life of the Christian, says, be, a, be alert, be sober-minded, and be watchful. But you need not be afraid. And so what I want to show you this morning is, what, what are some of those schemes what do some of those things look like? Because if, if the promise of, of John that he writes here, that the promise of God is true, that you're able to overcome those schemes, what are some of those things that we need to be aware of and watchful of? You know, I think nowhere are the schemes of, of the devil more on display than in a single interaction he has with Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Jesus' life at this point has taken a radical turn. After 30 years of obscurity, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. Perhaps you remember it. The Holy Spirit descends down on him. You hear God's voice from heaven just booming. In you I am well pleased. This is my son. And Jesus from there is led into the wilderness for 40 days of prayer and fasting as he inaugurates his time of ministry. And so that's the background here. This is, the, this is Luke chapter 4. Verses 1 through 13, if you've got your Bibles and you want to go there. This is the action, interaction that I want you to see. It says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then, speaking to Jesus, will worship me, it will all be yours. Verse 8, And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem Set him on the pinnacle, the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on, your, on their heads they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The schemes of the devil are on display in this interaction with Jesus. Notice first, when does he come to Jesus? 40 days without food, Jesus is undeniably weak and probably pretty hangry. Anybody else know a little bit about hangry? I know, man, I turned into a polar bear after about 45 minutes of not eating. My wife is forced to carry granola bars in her purse. It's not a great thing for me, I, I admit, but, you know, just the other night, I'm trying to put up a ceiling fan in this house and in a house that we're working on, and so it's not going very well, and I'm frustrated, and I'm, I'm on this ladder just hollering, and she's downstairs, 
And about two minutes later, she just appears at the side of the, side of the ladder holding a bowl of pasta and goes, eat this, and walks away. See, Jesus is undeniably in this moment weak. It's been 40 days since he's eaten. And when does Satan come to him? When he's weak, just like he does with you and I. Satan's doing what he tries to do best. He's coming at him when he's weak. He's trying to stir up fear. See, I I believe that sowing fear is one of Satan's just greatest tools that he can use to get you and I off course, to get us away from the call that God has on our life. And so what do we see him doing here? Well, he comes up to Jesus knowing that he's extremely hungry after 40 days, and he says, just turn that stone into bread. And we think to ourselves, do it. I would do it. But the root of what Satan is asking Jesus to do is he's saying, take it into your own hands. I know God has called you and led you into this. The Holy Spirit led you into this wilderness to fast, but why don't you just handle it? What if God actually brought you out here and then forgot about you? What if he actually meant to to bring you out here and have you starve to death? And what Satan's trying to do is, is stir up a fear that you and I carry. It's this fear of lack. It's this fear of not having enough that is so prevalent in our hearts. It's there. If you're honest, you can look and find it probably pretty quickly. There's a fear that each one of us carries that says, what if I don't have enough? What if I run out of what I need? What if no one is there to take care of me when I need them to? So you know you're, you're afraid that God's not going to provide. Sometimes this is subtle. and Sometimes this is significant. Some of us here this morning are so afraid that God's not going to provide a spouse that we've decided to take it into our own hands. And rather than trusting that God is going to provide what we need, we're dating a person we know is not God's best for us because it's taken too long for God to move on our behalf. I've got a friend who is unwilling to go on vacation because he's afraid of his company realizing they don't need him while he's away and losing his job and losing everything. Some of us are working ourselves to the bone because we're so afraid of not having enough that we're ignoring God's patterns of Sabbath and rest because we're just so afraid that we're not going to have enough. Some of us feel the conviction that the Holy Spirit has put on us that that our time and our money and our talents and resources, that, that we're meant to manage and steward those on behalf of God. But rather than living open-handedly and generous with those around us, we're hoarding what we have because we're just afraid. We're afraid of not having enough, and we're carrying a fear of lack. You see, but Jesus knows the promise, and so Jesus rests on the promise that he has. He answers Satan, but he does so in a way knowing what he's already declared. And We read his words in Matthew chapter 6. He says this, So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the hearts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Jesus stands strong in the face of temptation because he knows the promise of God that says, I will care for you and I will take care of you. I don't need to turn that stone into bread because I know God will take care of me and God will provide. He's able to sweep Satan away. 
But Satan doesn't go easily, does he? He doesn't stop there. He takes Jesus up, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and says, all power and authority and glory from this can be yours. See, Satan knows that a part of every single one of us that we carry is this fear of insignificance. This fear that we don't matter. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to say this out loud. It's a bit of a challenge to say, man, I'm really scared of, of not mattering. I'm, I'm fearing how if I come and go and nobody notices. I'm afraid that when I get to the end of my life and you add up all the things I've done, I haven't made any contribution to the, the total sum It's why it hurts so bad when the friend forgets to call. It's why it hurts so bad when the teacher forgets our name or when a coworker takes credit for work we've done. Because built into the hearts of every single one of us is this longing to matter. Longing to know that we're cared about. And the reason those things sting so bad is they seem to confirm what we already fear to be true. That we don't matter to anyone. And that our lives don't carry any significance. And so we crave the attention of our spouse and we crave the affirmation of our boss. We drop the names of important people when we're in conversation because we so want people to know that we matter. I see this in myself everywhere. And it's not pretty. It is ugly and it is wicked. You know, just a few years ago, I, was, I, I stopped using social media for a number of different reasons. Not the least of which I noticed that every time I put something up, I put up a Facebook post or something simple on Twitter, every single one just seemed to make me seem a little bit more holy than I actually was. I'm taking pictures of my Bible and saying, such a sweet time with God this morning. I'm trying to make people think I'm a little wiser and a little more funny and a little more holy than perhaps I am. Because I'm trying to puff up in me this need for significance. I'm trying to show that to people. My intention is not to rag on you for social media or or make you feel bad for taking a picture of your Bible. What I would ask you, though, is that I bet you if you looked at your accounts, you would see that there's a subtle piece of you that does this too. Because I haven't met anybody who doesn't. We're doing everything we can to look like we matter. We're chasing the approval of others. So Satan comes to Jesus. He shows him the kingdoms of the world. And what does he say? He says, everybody will know your name. All the kingdoms of the world will bow down to you. You will be known by all. You will be loved by all. All those feelings that you're looking for, you can be found in this moment if you'll just worship me. Not a big deal. Just, just worship me. And that approval that I know you long for, you can find in me. And in what I can offer you, kingdoms. But Jesus, Jesus won't be had. Jesus knows the promises of God in which the gospel is held true, in which he says, all that significance that you're hunting for can be found in the family of God. You want to know that you matter? Hang tight for a little while because I'm going to the cross that that I can answer for once and for all, you matter. So Jesus doesn't need to go around chasing the approval of others like we do. Because he knows he already has the approval of the one who matters most. His Father in heaven. 
Imagine the freedom that you and I could experience if we were able to stop acting. We could drop the pretense. We could stop caring so much what people thought of us if we realized and believed that we already carry the approval of the one who matters most. Can you feel the deep breath that your soul would be able to take if you stopped caring so much what that person next to you thought of you? You were able to rest in the fact that you sit underneath God as beloved and adopted and redeemed because of the work of Jesus Christ. Imagine that, what that would feel like. So Jesus doesn't fall prey to Satan, doesn't give in to the the fear of insignificance that Satan is trying to stir up in him. So Satan continues here with Jesus, and what does he do? He brings him to a high point, he says, throw yourself off. He says, let God, let's see if God will catch you. And you can imagine Jesus in this moment just turning his gaze at the devil and just saying, I don't need to test God. See, this one's subtle. What is at the root of testing? Ever think about that? What does it mean to test something? Remember back in school, maybe it was biology, and end of the semester, and so it's time to have a biology test. What are, you, what are you doing with that? Well, you've got this grand sum of knowledge that you're supposed to know, and the test is meant to expose the weak points in your knowledge. I remember being an engineer, and we, we made door hardware that had to stand up to a certain amount of force. And so I remember doing wind testing, where we'd, we'd put two-by-fours in a cannon and shoot it at the door. And stronger and stronger until the door eventually busted and gave way. And the test was meant to expose how deep the integrity of the hardware went. You walk up to a chair that looks a little rickety, and what you do? You, you put your hands on it, and you test it. And so testing is all about checking the integrity of it. And so that's why Satan is not able to get Jesus because Jesus looks at him and says, I don't need to test God. I don't need to check where his integrity lies. I don't need to test him because I know who he is. There's no need for me to do that. See, Satan is trying to plant seeds of doubt in every place. See, we live in a society Where we've learned that given enough time, given enough pressure, given enough friction and difficulty, eventually we will be disappointed. And so that's why Satan wants us to test God. Because we've been taught maybe by our past relationships, or by things that have happened to us, or by a job that we really love that we lost, that given enough time, everything and everyone will let you down. So let's test God to see if and when he's going to let you down. See, some of us, we met that girl that we thought we were going to marry, and she married someone else. Our hearts were crushed. We had the job that we loved, and after 12 months, we got let go because they were downsizing. Some of us know the pain of not having a parent because our dad walked out on us when we were young. And so that's planted these seeds to say, eventually, given enough time, this person will let you down. And so let's just test God to see when he's going to let us down. That's what Satan is, is doing here. And you know what that's like. It's why sometimes we have such a hard time believing the promises of God. It's so hard for our, us to just let our hearts go to a place where we say, can God really be who he says he is? Can God really be trustworthy? Can God really be as faithful as his word declares him to be? Because we fear 
the letdown. We fear inevitably God letting us down. What would it be like this morning if you allowed your heart to believe again that God is unshakably for you, that his character has no holes, that in resting on him, you found a foundation that will never crack and will never crumble. Imagine the faith in your heart that just begins to swell as you say, God, I will believe in your faithfulness. I will believe that your promises are true. I will believe that your mercies truly never do run out. They never do run dry. Imagine what would happen if we allowed our hearts to trust and believe again. To believe that God is as good as he says he is. He's as sovereign and powerful as his word tells us he is. He's as kind and faithful as his promises say he is. Some of us are allowing our emotions to answer that question for us. We're allowing past experiences to inform who we believe God to be. And what I want to urge you to, I want to push you to this morning, is that those places always will let you down because they're fleeting and they move. The only place to determine who God is is on the foundation of his promises found in the word of God. That's why Jesus, every single time Satan went to him, he went back to the word of God. Because he says, I know I haven't eaten for 40 days, but I'm not going to allow that emotion to answer how I feel right now. I'm going to stand firm on the promises of God. See, John tells us here in John, this fifth chapter, that the weapon that we wield against the schemes of the devil is our faith. The problem is, for some of us, we put our faith in the wrong things. And so we have a flimsy styrofoam sword versus a strong weapon of steel. Because we've chosen to put our faith in our past experiences and we know that this person has let us down and this person has let us down and this person has betrayed us so there's no way I'm going to believe God is who he says he is. I'm like that pastor who got removed from ministry because of his mistakes. There's no way I'm believing that church stuff anymore. Mike, if you only knew that, that person that hurt me, you'd understand why it's so hard for me to believe that God is who he says he is. My father was awful and if God's anything like my father, I want nothing to do with him. We're putting our faith in the wrong place. What if this morning we chose to put our faith in God back to the place Jesus put it, into the promises that we find all throughout Scripture? What would that do in your heart if it began to just completely reframe the way you see everything? What if you allowed faith in your heart just to stir up and believe one more time that God actually could be good And he could be for you. And he could be sovereign and kind and faithful and merciful. In this very moment, I believe the Holy Spirit is beginning to swell those things back in you because you know that connects and agrees with your spirit. And yet we've ignored that for so long. We've allowed all these other things to answer those questions when God is turning us back, calling us to who he is. What I want to do this morning as we close here in just a moment, is I want to get us to just stir up again on the promises of God. So let's stand to our feet. I want to remind you this morning of five promises. What I want you to do is I want to encourage you that this week take a seven-day challenge at these promises that God has given us throughout Scripture, that you would take them, 
You'd write them down that every day as you spend time with God, you would meditate on these. You would read them over. You would reflect on them. You would ask questions about how they inform the way you see God. First one is Hebrews 10, 23. writes this, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Imagine how it would completely reshape the way you see the world if you actually believe that God was faithful. That the promises God has in the scripture that are for you, for those of you who have faith in him, that those are actually true and that you can actually believe them. What if you actually looked at what John writes and says, you can overcome the schemes of the devil, you can overcome him and live victoriously and took hold of that. That's what Christ won for you. The ability to take those promises and take hold of them and say, those are mine. Hebrews 10.23. You can write the rest of these down and look them up. Isaiah 41.10. Matthew 6.31-34. Romans 8.37-39. And Philippians 4.19. I challenge you that if you will for seven days meditate on those five promises, it will completely reshape the way you see the world. Because as our hearts begin to come home to understand that God is who he says he is, it changes everything. See, no longer do we wrestle with fear of lack and make bad decisions because we're afraid of not having enough. Because deep in our bones we realize that God is a good father and his promise to take care of us is true. No longer do we need to, to worry about building our, our kingdom because we know that there's an eternal kingdom that God has for us that is so much more valuable We don't need to run around chasing the approval of others because in the gospel, God promises that we stand approved already. Beloved and adopted. And I'm not going to stay back from God wondering if and when he's going to let us down and let me down. Because I will believe that he is faithful. His promises secure my victory. There's one thing I want you to lay hold of this morning. It's that the promises of God secure the victory that you so desperately need. It's not found in your skill. It's not found in your ability to overcome on your own. It's the promises of God that lead to the overcoming life that John promises. His promises secure my victory. I've asked the band if they would lead us in the song, Faithful to the End. In just a minute here as we sing, I I would just ask, there's a part of you that wants to hold back a little bit. And I believe the invitation from the Lord this morning is step back in. Step back into that childlike faith that chooses to believe the good about me. Allow yourself in this moment to, to have that tank of faith begin to be refilled. I know some of you came in here and that tank is empty and broken and cracked and it feels like it's just leaking. But this morning, God wants to fill it back up with a fresh infusion of faith. So I want to encourage you as we sing, would you just allow your heart just to begin to bubble up again? Just say, God, I I know my circumstances make it seem like it's not true, but, but I'm going to push those to the side and say, I believe that you are who you say you are. 
I believe that you are good, even though that seems to be not what I'm seeing. I believe that you will provide for me, even though I don't see how right now. I'm not going to let fear dominate me. I'm going to take my faith, and I'm going to ground it in the promises of God. And that will inform who I am and what I do. Not fear. Satan has no ability to stomp on your faith if you raise it up and just push those fears aside. And that faith finds its strength and finds its root in the promises of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come before you right now just admitting that it's sometimes so hard for us to stir up this faith that you, you promised to us. And yet right now, God, we believe you are who you say you are, that your faithfulness knows no bounds, that your mercies are in fact new every morning, that never will those who follow you be without, because you will take care of us as a good father cares for his children. So right now, God, we stir up our affection, we stir up our faith, and we just set our eyes on you saying you are good and faithful and kind to us. Come on, let's sing together. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.